This is DIA Connections. I knew the DIA existed. I knew uh, the work you guys do is obviously some of the most important work in the world because you, you guys can hopefully prevent us from going to major wars. One of the things I had on my bucket list was to, to watch the movie Air Force One, you know, with Harrison Ford on Air Force One. So I was able to do that. <laughs> and I don't know how many people in the world have done that, but I was able to do that. The reality that I had been kidnapped by the very group of people that I was working in and trying to help was startling. And as you can imagine, hard to deal with. In addition to God Bless America, America the Beautiful, maybe the Battle Hymn of the Republic, you find God Bless USA in all the books. It's like, that's your mark, you know? Recently, we've been running out farther and farther west to the Russian border to catch bigger and better apelio crab. And you can get yourself in trouble. If you cross over that line, the Russians would be allowed to seize your vessel, take it into port and put you in jail. President Obama came back to the Oval Office and it was at that point that he turned to me and said that all hell could break loose today. Those were some of the people we spoke with on our very first season of DIA Connections. And this is our best of show. We certainly hope you had a chance to listen to all 13 episodes in this, our inaugural season of DIA Connections. But I'm guessing that's a stretch. We know there's a lot of podcasts out there and not a lot of time. Well, that's okay. Here's your chance to catch up and hear what you missed on the best podcast in the intelligence community. So what did you miss? Well, a lot. After all, we had 35 guests. Here's the short list to pique your interest. We had an Emmy Award-winning TV journalist, a New York Times best-selling author, a U.S. District Attorney, an Alaskan King Crab fishing boat captain, a counterterrorism analyst, a guitar maker, a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and a Grammy Award winner. Commitment to excellence in defense of the nation. That is the core value of the Defense Intelligence Agency. When we started this podcast in 2020, we set out to bring that value and that mission home specifically into your home. So how do we go about doing that? And how do we explore all the tangential ways that connect us? Well, first, we have to get your attention. Listen to me. Don't look at me with those beady eyeballs. I don't want to see him bouncing off me. That was Dale Dye. And even though I knew that was coming because I asked him to do it, it still scared me. Since our inception in 1961, the DIA has provided intelligence to our policymakers and our warfighters. Captain Dai was one of those warfighters, and he served two tours of duty in Vietnam. He came to DIA headquarters, and he spoke to the workforce about how his experiences there helped set the stage for a career in Hollywood as an actor and military technical advisor on movies for Oliver Stone and Steven Spielberg. On our second episode, here's how Dale described working with Spielberg on the classic opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. We had about a thousand men on the beach. We had 14 armored vehicles and we had seven ships at sea and I had to control them all on one radio. And we let that thing roll and I told Spielberg, I said, listen, boss, um, when you say action and we bring those landing craft in and the ramps go down and the, the explosions start going off, I said, you can say cut until you're blue in the face. Nothing's gonna happen. These guys are gold. That's just it. This is an assault, and they're into it, and they're going. 
And he said, well, what ha-? I said, never mind. I, it's just, let's do it. And he did. He said, okay, action, let's roll. We had seven cameras going and, uh, and we brought them in. And it was uh, an amazing, amazing sequence. It sure was. It was arguably one of the most realistic scenes ever shot. But let's not leave Hollywood just yet. Our third episode was with actor-comedian Rob Riggle. Rob has a long list of movie and TV credits, and like Dale Dye, he also served in the military. 23 years in the Marine Corps, 9 years active duty, and 14 in the reserves. Lieutenant Colonel Riggle came to DIA to learn more about us, and in the process, we learned more about him. And he made us laugh. I joined the Marines uh, in 1990 when I was 19 years old. I actually thought I wanted to be an FBI agent, uh, is what I really, really thought I did. Um, I even called the FBI when I was 19, and I said, oh, how do you become an agent? You know, and, and they were like, well, we like lawyers and accountants. I was like, shoot, um, <laughs> it's never gonna happen. Um, they go, you can try the Marines. Uh, we, we, we hire Marines every now and then. So I was like, oh, well, maybe that'll work. I was a child of the 80s, so I grew up watching Caddyshack, Stripes, Meatballs, you know, all these classic movies from the 80s, and it just made me laugh. They brought me so much joy. I thought they were hilarious. I've been on many deployments, and movies uh, do help quite a bit. And you get to know every single word. It's weird. You learn every line, and then they become part of your vernacular, and then you find yourself going through life, quoting these movies for the rest of your life. I, quote, I still quote Stripes. It's Czechoslovakia. We zip in, we zip out. It's not like we're going to Moscow. Rob Riggle also told us this. I didn't know the size uh, of the DIA. It's, it's massive and it's impressive and it's, it's really something to behold. And I'm learning more today, obviously, getting a better grasp of it. Doing these podcasts has given us an opportunity to communicate about some of the work that we do that affects all of us on an everyday basis and about why we do it like DIA's role in tracking the illegal production and distribution of the opioid fentanyl coming into the country. This deadly serious issue was the topic of our first DIA Connections episode. If you can imagine an airliner falling out of the sky every other day, that's about how many people die from fentanyl. That was Brian Drake, DIA's Director of Artificial Intelligence for Future Capabilities and Innovations. And next, here's a DIA agent talking about a unique and innovative defense intelligence agency mass data analytics program called Sable Spear. We decided to leverage an artificial intelligence solution towards looking at all this information on the aggregate. It is fairly difficult for an analyst to click through hundreds of websites to make linkages among many, many disparate email addresses, phone numbers, what have you. However, a computer can sort through that text very quickly. And not to say that this solution is necessarily a replacement, but so much so as an augmentation of what an analyst's skills can do. So looking at this aggregate data set, we can derive connections more easily. We can look at broader trends. And within those broader trends, we can say, this is an anomaly. This is where things are going. And from there, we can pull out more research. We can better inform our policymakers of what's happening in the now. On our episode called Bringing Them Home, we talked about another DIA-established program that dates all the way back to 1986, and it still exists to this day. It's called Stony Beach. Through it, DIA has individuals that conduct analysis and continue intelligence support for the missing who are still unaccounted for from the Vietnam War. 
The search is an exhaustive one, and something experienced on a first-hand basis by Mary Quinn. In 1993, Mary was a Defense Intelligence Agency analyst with the Vietnam section of the Special Office of POW-MIA Affairs. One of the early successes was when we were on the investigation in 93, there was a, an Air Force pilot who was one of our priority discrepancy cases, and we had some disagreement with the Vietnamese about where we were going to go and do the investigation, and we diplomatically persisted. And when we went to the location where we had determined through a number of investigations where he was likely to be and interviewing witnesses, we found him buried in a makeshift coffin, but he was he was buried intact, flight suit, ID card, dog tags. And to be able to do that for a family was hugely important. Mary Quinn's career at the Defense Intelligence Agency has spanned decades, and she credits her work early on as an analyst for POW-MIA affairs as the driving force behind her passion for the mission to bring them home. One of the reasons that I chose to have a long career at DIA was the very personal commitment that my colleagues and I feel towards supporting uh, service members and Part of that was formed when I was working in the POW-MIA cell, seeing the great efforts and the the seriousness of purpose that people had in terms of, we have a commitment to these are our brothers and sisters, and we need to do everything that we can to account for them. And I think that that is, it's committed to excellence in defense of the nation, but it is really committed to one another and committed to service and taking care of one another. And and that uh, was a driving passion for me. And it was one of the things why I was happy to be able to use my experience in the cases from the Vietnam War up to current activities. And I think that that's something which I've seen in all of my colleagues that work on these related issues. That embodiment of compassion, dedication, and service was also on full display in our episode called Spirit. That's when April Millette shared her story. In 2020, April became the first person ever chosen from the Defense Intelligence Agency to be a recipient of the Spirit of Hope Award. The award was established in 1997 by the Department of Defense. It was named after the great entertainer Bob Hope. It epitomizes the values of duty, honor, courage, loyalty, commitment, integrity, and a selfless contribution of time, talent, or resources to benefit service members. I am so blessed. I get to talk with heroes every day. That's April. Can you hear why she would be the perfect choice for the award? April was honored for her volunteer work with an organization that arranges for veterans to travel to Washington, D.C. to visit memorials dedicated to honoring the sacrifices of those who served. April has participated in 20 missions, bringing over 1,600 veterans to the nation's capital. She told us about one of those very special trips, and I hope you have a tissue handy. Let me tell you about Mr. Corey. He was a combat engineer landed on D-Day with 27 of his buddies. When they finally got through and got to Berlin, there were seven of them left. Mr. Corey was 
one of the seven that got to come home. We got in to DC and we got to his memorial and we pull up and I said, we're here. He goes, I have mixed emotions. And he started rubbing his eyes. I said, are you all right? He goes, this place is beautiful. And I cannot thank you all enough for getting me here. He goes, but why did I make it? Why, why was I one of the seven? I said, one of the reasons that you're here, I said, is because you're here for all the boys. All the ones that didn't come home, I said, you're here for them. He goes, I am. And he, he looks up, he goes, hey boys, look what we got. <laughs> and it was so cool. He goes, this place really, really is beautiful. I said, it should be. I said, because it's yours. So seeing it through them, it's amazing. I'm certain that if veterans past and present could collectively say one thing to April, they would take a cue from Bob Hope and say, April, thanks for the memories. Thanks for the memories. It's a good song, but not quite as popular as this one. On the very same episode as April was someone else who wears their patriotism on their sleeve. Here's singer-songwriter Lee Greenwood. I wrote a song that was my expression of love for the country. And I I didn't know that it was ever going to be heard. Any way you Google it, top patriotic songs, best patriotic song, most popular patriotic songs, you'll find Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. It's patriotic verses and rousing chorus has brought audiences to their feet for almost 40 years. He is in rarefied air with a song that has become an American anthem. It's one of those things when you pick up an American songbook, in addition to God Bless America, America the Beautiful, maybe the Battle Hymn of the Republic, you find God Bless USA in all the books. It's like, that's your mark, you know? This is my tribute to my country. And... There's nothing more important to that than to make that statement, because if you come from someplace that is not free, and we have a lot of allies and a lot of countries we visited around the world with my family, and they recognize the value of freedom, and they know that this little simple song I wrote is just so important that people remember not who wrote it, but how important it is to, you know, the country and to the nation. From a Grammy Award winner to New York Times bestselling author, we were pleased to have Malcolm Gladwell as a guest to talk about insider spy Ana Montez. Montez was an analyst at the DIA in 2001 when she was arrested for conspiracy to commit espionage. Gladwell wrote about the Montez case in a recent book. But before we hear from Gladwell, let's listen to a little bit of the episode Hiding in Plain Sight. Ana Montes joined the Defense Intelligence Agency in 1985 as an entry-level research specialist. She quickly became a highly decorated intelligence analyst. She was a rising star. 
She was considered a subject matter expert on Latin American affairs, in particular about Cuba. In the intelligence community, and especially at DIA, she became known as the Queen of Cuba. On the morning of September 21st, 2001, agents from the FBI came to the headquarters of the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C., and arrested her for conspiracy to commit espionage. Ms. Montez committed espionage for the Cuban Intelligence Service since 1985. She compromised both secret and top secret classified information relating to the national defense, as well as the identities of four U.S. intelligence officers. It's not that easy to spot them. Spies don't have great big green dots in the middle of their foreheads to make it easy to identify them. They look just like you and me. And they act just like you and me. And they're just like Ana Montes, who is a model employee. We are entrusted in the intelligence community with some unique responsibilities. And that somebody would violate that trust was disappointing, frustrating, and disgusting. Montes never risked taking highly classified secret documents or electronic files out of the building. Instead, she memorized details, and when she got home, she typed them from memory into her laptop. Next, she copied her typed information onto encrypted disks. Then she'd receive coded instructions via a shortwave radio she kept in her bedroom closet about where to hand over the disks to her Cuban contacts, who she would meet at restaurants in Washington, D.C. Here's Malcolm Gladwell with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. Malcolm, at one point you say in your book something along the lines of Ana Montes was not a master spy. She didn't have to be. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by that? We're not deceived because the people who are deceiving us are somehow brilliant and duplicitous and capable of hoodwinking us. No, it's because of our own own inherent weaknesses. It's a reflection on our inability to understand deception, not this particular skill of the deceiver. It is our persistent belief that somehow to be a successful spy, you need to be this kind of brilliant genius that I think leaves us so dangerously vulnerable. We don't prefer to catch somebody in a big lie like that, do we? I mean... It's easier for us also if we can believe them, right? As opposed to thinking they're lying. That's what we do as human beings. That's part of what social interaction is. It's why the job of being a counterintelligence officer or a police officer is so insanely difficult. I came away from writing the book with just unbelievable respect for people in various aspects of law enforcement or national security work, because we're asking people to do something that is contrary to human nature. That's really, I mean, once you realize that, it's just a a phenomenally difficult task we've given them. Ana Montes was undoubtedly a low-water mark in the glorious history of the agency. But now we turn our attention to someone who was a great source of pride at DIA. His name is Jim Denoy, and he was featured on our seventh episode, The President's Daily Brief. Up until 2010, The President's Daily Briefer was always someone from CIA. But that streak came to an end when Jim Denoy from the Defense Intelligence Agency was bestowed that honor. Here's Jim speaking with Paul about the role. 
if you don't achieve that trust, you can't be effective, right? I mean, they have to believe what you're saying, right? That's right. And that goes to the, the confidence, you know, and people would say, were you scared going into uh, the Oval Office? The answer is, well, not if you're prepared. I mean, the best way to mitigate being scared is to be prepared. So uh, be prepared. I liken it to cramming for finals every single night. It was just like that. So you have to exude confidence, but not arrogance. Because let's face it, Paul, if the briefer is hemming or hawing or, or pausing or sweating or moving around, how is the customer going to have confidence and trust in what you're saying is, is really true? You have to be able to present your material with, with confidence, what I like to call it, I use the three, three C's, clear, crisp, and concise. Uh, put the bottom line up front and address the so what. Mr. President, this is important because. On a little bit lighter note, mm -hmm. tell us about some of the fun things that were a part of this job. Not, I'm not now speaking of getting up at 11 p.m. and being at Langley at midnight. I'm talking about other more actually fun things. Clearly, the funnest part of the job was being on the road you know, with the president, to be able to, to fly on Air Force One, to be able to go up to Camp David, to be part of the motorcades, you know, just to be part of the excitement uh, that is associated with, with a presidential trip, whether it's domestically or uh, internationally, uh, was just a, a thrill that, that one can never, can never replicate. Uh, one of the things I had on my bucket list was to, to watch the movie Air Force One, you know, with Harrison Ford on Air Force One. So I was able to do that. <laughs> and I don't know how many people in the world have done that, but, uh, but I was able to do that. Jim Denoy wasn't the only guest we had that was able to speak about having exclusive access to the Oval Office. This is Pete Souza. I was the chief official White House photographer for all eight years of the Obama administration. For our show, Finding Bin Laden, we spoke with Pete about his unique perspective from inside the White House the day the U.S. Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden. The first meeting that day, May 1st, at around 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time in the Situation Room with all the principals, I, I walked in with President Obama and they immediately started discussing the last-minute details of uh, the raid on the uh, bin Laden compound. He left that meeting, you know, after maybe an hour or so. He walked back to the Oval Office, and it was at that point that he turned to me and said that, you know, all hell could break loose today. Pete took 1.9 million photographs in his eight years with the Obama administration. During the 40 minutes he was in the room witnessing history, he took 100. The one he chose to be released publicly two days later is a riveting account that speaks to the tension. That's the one with everyone transfixed on the events unfolding in the compound and with Secretary of State Clinton's hand over her mouth. <laughs> Throughout those 40 minutes, various people had their hand up to their mouth. You know, whether it was Bob Gates or President Obama or Joe Biden or, you know, and, and it just so happened that this clear, to me, this clearly was the best picture. Mostly what I was looking for when I was trying to decide which, which picture from that room we were going to select was how did everybody else look. When you have that many people in a picture 
inevitably somebody is going to be looking down or somebody's going to be in the middle of a blank. There, there wasn't any like sort of off moment with, with anybody. And then Hillary's face, you know, certainly added to, I guess, the drama of it in some ways. In that same episode, we spoke with a DIA senior intelligence analyst who was part of the Joint Intelligence Task Force for Combating Terrorism. And we learned more about what DIA did in the efforts to find bin Laden. DIA's role in counterterrorism had historically been one of what we call indications and warning. So essentially trying to determine if there are attacks that could impact U.S. military or Department of Defense interests anywhere in the world. On the offensive side, essentially what we would do is develop what we called campaign analysis products for key al-Qaeda figures. And what we would do is weave together intelligence from a wide range of sources, intelligence assets on the ground, technical intelligence collection, overhead imagery, as well as reporting from allied intelligence services that, that shared information with us to really develop a solid, precise intelligence picture of where these guys were located. Was this process mostly frustrating or mostly exciting or, you know, was it mostly dead ends or was it every day brought a new clue that was like, we're getting closer? Tell us about how this felt, if you will. There were a lot more dead ends than we would have liked, uh, but that's kind of the nature of the business. And, you know, for every lead that you get that you think is valuable, you know, there, there are 10 others or 20 others that are not so valuable. Ultimately, I can't say that I was terribly optimistic. I can say certainly that we were never going to stop trying. In the first season of DIA Connections, we spoke with many wonderful former teammates. But perhaps none had the impact on us and touched our hearts like Joe Hall did. On November 4th, 1979, Joe was working as an attache at the U.S. Embassy in Iran when Iranian students stormed and took over the embassy. Joe and four others from the DIA were among 52 American hostages taken and held for 444 days. Here's how he described that chaotic scene from our show, Iran Hostage Crisis. We were all at work. Uh, you know, we, uh, everyone on the defense attache staff was there. Crowd started gathering outside the gate and was getting just unbelievably loud and boisterous. And it is literally just a sea of people out there. I remember listening to the Marines saying, it looks like they're trying to cut the gate, cut the, uh, cut the chains on the gate. There was just a, just a unbelievable crowd of people squeezing through that, that gate into the embassy compound. And that's when we fired up the shredder and the incinerator and started burning material. I remember the uh, security officer coming online and said, open the door or they're going to shoot me. And they opened the door uh, and to keep him from getting shot, and they all came inside the building. Of course, the, uh, the Marines were wanting permission to shoot and kill, but, uh, you know, the, the folks upstairs in the ambassador's office or the Charze's office, they were on the phone with Washington and were told to... Do not try to defend yourselves. We don't need a loss of life here. Give it up. They put a gun at my head and took me away. 
they uh, they tied my hands behind my back and they blindfolded me and they uh, marched me out of the embassy building over to what was uh, uh, the uh, ambassador's residence. Man, that must have been that must have been terrifying when they walked you out of there handcuffed. You must have not known what was going to happen next. I remember thinking they're not going to get away with this. The government's going to step in here and take control of this. Not only our government, but whatever government of Iran existed at the time. They're going to take control of this, and they're going to evacuate the rest of us, and I'm going to be home for Thanksgiving. Joe Hall wasn't the only story we told about an American held hostage. We spoke earlier on our Bringing Them Home episode recap about DIA's role in the POW MIA mission which dates back to the mid-1960s. But there's more to that mission, which might be less known, but by no means less significant. And that's DIA's role in the planning and execution of rescue and recovery operations, not just for military hostages, but for civilians as well. In 2011, Jessica Buchanan was a humanitarian aid worker in Somalia when she was held hostage. At that time, Catherine Omig was the chief of the intelligence community POW-MIA analytics cell at DIA. She told us about DIA's efforts in bringing her home. So for our office, the cell, the two most important aspects of a case are the status of the victim, and by that I mean how how are they, what's their condition, are they alive, are they being tortured, are they being given food, water, medical attention, uh, and we also want to know their location. So those are the two areas that we focus on. We do make assessments about how we think the case might resolve, such as if the captors you know, will kill the hostage or not. Now that question also has some operational and even political implications, but our role is to make sure the people who make the decisions have the intelligence they need to do their jobs. Now in my experience, uh, commanders will take on more risk for a live hostage than for remains, but at DIA, Once we have opened a case, we don't close it until the person gets back. Information provided by DIA and other intel agencies led to a dramatic rescue attempt by the Navy SEALs. Here's Jessica's account of what happened that night. There were nine pirates on guard that night out in the camp, and everybody was completely passed out. I come back to my mat, and I lay down. All the pirates are still passed out. I don't understand it, but I do have remember having the thought that it was a very dark night. There was no moon. There were no stars. And I did think if ever there were a time to try to escape, tonight would be the night. But I was too sick. I didn't know where I was. I can never carry enough water. So I laid down on my mat again, covered myself with my blanket, but I can hear this scratching noise getting closer and closer. I think it's these beetles that would come out, these dung beetles that would come out at night. They're harmless, but very annoying. They would get my hair, they would get my clothes, and I just wasn't in the mood. So I stood up and I shook my blanket out and I couldn't find any beetles, but I can still hear the scratching noise. And it feels like it's getting closer and I I don't understand why I can't see anything. Do this a couple of times, I'm so exasperated. I know I need to sleep. Lay down, try to just tune it out, and not two minutes goes by when Helper, who's sleeping next to me, I hear him jump up. He starts whisper screaming at the other guys that they need to get up, get up. 
I pull the blanket away from my face and I see this look of sheer terror and he's holding a gun. 30 seconds later, the entire night just erupts into automatic gunfire. I'm hearing the worst sounds, people being hit by bullets, falling to the ground, moaning, breathing their last breaths. And all I can think is, I really am never going to survive. I get as low to the ground as I possibly can and I just start praying saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, over and over again. And then somebody grabs my arms, my shoulders, and my legs, and they just start shaking. I start kicking back, fighting back as much as I can. And then the blanket's pulled away from my face, and all I can see is black night and black masks. I just hear this voice that sounds very much like my brother. An American young man says, Jessica, Jessica, it's okay. Honey, we're the American military. You're safe now. We're going to take you home. Lastly, we're going to leave you with a little bit from our episode called The Director's Cut. That was our show featuring Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, who served as the Defense Intelligence Agency Director from 2017 to 2020. How would you assess your overall three years at DIA? Kind of a roller coaster ride. And there are times when, you know, I would take my hands off the bar and and there are times when I was holding on for dear life. I, I would really say, you know, it's an honor. Um, it's been an education. It's been fun. It has been stressful. It's the whole gamut of emotions. Sir, if you had the chance to speak directly to the American people and tell them just what DIA does, what would you tell them? And could you comment on the basic question that a lot of Americans ask themselves, are we safe? The most impactful way to tell you what DIA does every day is everybody that comes through our doors, their job is to protect your hopes and dreams, your way of life, your family. And so everything that you hold dear, just going to a ball game, now set aside pandemics, going to a baseball game and not worrying about somebody attacking. Are we safe? There is always gonna be threats out there. There's always gonna be vulnerabilities. And so it's that vigilance every single day to try to find out who's trying to hack, who's trying to make some kind of encroachment, who's trying to move in um, on our national interests in a global uh, forum. So we work all of that every day with members of the intelligence community, uh, with members of the government. And our job is to make you as safe as possible by understanding what the threats are, getting that information to decision makers, and then working with a rather large team of how do we counter it. We really hope you enjoyed listening to not only this episode, but to all the rest of season one. And we look forward to season two. But if you can't wait that long to learn more about the Defense Intelligence Agency in this, our 60th anniversary year, check us out on social media or go to DIA.mil. And please don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening.